This podcast is named The North Korea Work Begins. The people who met us at the airport were from the Flood Damage Rehabilitation Committee, the FDRC. They were to be our hosts while we were in the DPRK. They were fluent in English, well-versed in their country's history, and trained to lecture us daily on the virtues of their country's government and philosophy. They were so committed to their work, yet they were pleasant, and they seemed eager to be with us. The Corio Hotel was to be our residence for the duration. We went to our assigned rooms, which were singles. Entering the doorway, there was a small foyer. To the right was the bathroom, and straight ahead was a small two-chair sitting room where you could look down on the street, and to the left was the bedroom with two single beds. On the right was the foyer of the foyer, was an enormous wall-mounted mirror. It was possible to see the mirror from every space in the suite. I was able to see in the next suite when the maids came to service it. I glanced in there. It was exactly opposite of my room. The huge mirror was mounted on the left wall of that foyer. I also noticed the walls between the two suites were about three feet apart, and there was a door in the wall of the hallway between the two rooms. I was just being alert and cautious, and as usually, I'm, you know, usually that way overseas, not necessarily suspicious, but it was interesting. Our team met with the FDRC official to begin negotiating the methods and detail of our monitoring work. Our expectations, of course, we, we expected to verify the amount of corn delivered from each ship, confirm the bagging operation, and then go to the delivery sites, confirm the amount of corn expected, and uh, confirm the amount actually delivered for distribution. This would require transportation and hosts for each monitor. The sites to receive the corn and the amount to be delivered would be decided by our team negotiator and the FDRC representative. We did not want the military to be fed with our corn. The negotiations began with our presentation of monitoring requirements. Their negotiator ignored most of what we said and told us how it would be. He also informed us that any travel would be done as a group in one vehicle. After hours of negotiation, their man said, look, look at this from our situation. We're at war with your country. You're behind enemy lines. Do you expect us to let you travel over our country? We're honest people. How do you think our officials feel about Americans double-checking all their reports? You must realize that our people are mad at America because their embargo against us has caused so many of our problems. Stalemate. Huh. Oh, boy. I excused myself from the group and retired to my room to pray. I prayed God would show us a way to do our job, that he would soften the negotiator's heart, show us a way to satisfy the superiors, his superiors, and still get our job done. I prayed for an opening to which we could go to get our job done. Everyone was in the coffee shop when I returned. They'd made no progress. The father prompted me to ask the FDRC official a question totally unrelated to negotiation. 
What is your major problem beside the flood shortage? You look worried. He jerked his head up, looked at me in surprise, and blurted out, The typhoon, which hit our west coast two days ago, it destroyed much of our western dike system that protected us from the sea. Salt water has damaged large fields of wheat and rice. To the surprise of my teammates, I replied, I have almost 40 years of experience with natural disasters, including hurricanes, typhoons, and earthquakes. How are you going to repair those dikes? He said, we have 40 to 60,000 mobilizees uh, we've sent to each of the large breaches. How are they going to live there? I asked. They must make their own shelter, he replied. How do you plan to feed them? I asked. He dropped his gaze, staring at the tabletop. He said, I don't know. This is my major problem. I asked him if he would let us help him by sending food to the dike repair crews. He snapped his head up. Would you help us? I replied, of course. That's why we're here. We could set up a food for work program using your measures and feed your workers. He practically danced with happiness and relief as he left. I looked up and quietly prayed. Thank you, Lord. You solved both problems, his problem and mine, with a question I could never have thought to ask. Oh, my. Eventually, I was to travel over most of the West Coast, checking work done and food distributed. I tried to share my faith with one of my hosts on a long road trip. He laughed at me and said he did not believe in God because it was irrational. I continued to talk about my religion, but he was well-trained in countering every attempt I made. His training locked his mind against anything I tried to say. I prayed, Father, what can I do to break this barrier? He spoke to my mind, just be quiet. I'll take care of it, trust me. I did as I was told, and he really did what he said he would do. I traveled to Suniju, one of the most northern cities in the west coast. It's across the river from uh, the river Amnok. Our maps call it the Yalu. From Dandong, China, that's just a river celebrating. Standing on a hilltop, I could see vast fields of wheat, corn, and rice. The grain heads and cobs heads had not filled out with grain yet, but the plants were turning brown dead because of the tidal surge of salt water. Oh, that broke my heart. The hunger was already at a lethal level. The corn we were bringing was to help them live until their harvest time. And now the harvest would not be coming. The dike system was severely damaged. Breaks from several hundred meters to a kilometer were evident. Some of the cuts had as many as 40 to 60,000 people camped out in the surrounding fields. Our corn began to arrive in 110 pound sacks. The sacks were white and red <laughs> and blue. Oh boy, red, white, and blue. And USA was stamped in large letters. It was clearly evident who sent the corn. Walking along the dikes and being among the mobilizees was a wonderful experience. Many would stop their work and come out of their rice straw thatched shelters, grab my hand and thank me for the food with broad smiles on their faces. I was humbled by the sacrifice they were making just to be there compared to the hotel or guest house where I would be sleeping.
It's very difficult to give you a mental image of the reconstruction scene on a dike. The dikes were 20 or 30 meters wide at the bottom, 12 meters wide at the top, and 10 to 15 meters tall. When I calculated the amount of material it would take to rebuild one meter, that's just three feet, of the smaller dike, I was astonished. It required 160 cubic meters, or cubic 208 cubic yards, to build 39 inches of the smallest dike. It would take almost 35 loads of mud in a six cubic yard dump truck to build 39 inches of dike. They were facing to a hundred to a thousand meter cuts in the dikes. And there were many miles of dikes to be repaired before the land could be desalinated and planted again. All their earth moving equipment had been covered with salt water and was ruined. They were using shovels to load mud from the seafloor at low tide onto backpacks. A person with a load of mud would climb the dike, dump the mud into the dike bed where people were mixing it with rice straw using their bare feet. It was like the biblical description of the Hebrews in Egypt making bricks with mud and straw. By American standards, I was looking at an impossible solution to an unbelievable task. They were singing as they worked. They completed the project. I was deeply impressed, my friends, by the Korean people. They are amazing. Over several weeks, I traveled down the west coast, town to town, county to county, surveying many thousands of hectares. There are 2.47 acres in one hectare. All of this are growing crops. Actually, the World Food Program of the United Nations estimated their loss to be 20% of their harvest. I became more convinced than ever that I was on a life-saving mission. My inconvenience in living conditions and traveled for hours bouncing over broken roads, my heartbreak, heartbreaking separation from my family, the submersion into a foreign culture and language, the constant surveillance and control I was under, the intense concentration I had to have on what I saw and heard and said, and suddenly it became of no concern. I was in the middle of God's will, joining him in his work. This is usually where he gives me the battle plan for conquering one challenge at a time. I could smell the aroma of the yet unrealized victory. He does not want me to become an expert at conquering challenges. He wants me to walk on my knees in prayer so he can instruct me in how to conquer the challenge before me. Victory is not my goal. That's for him. My goal is obedience. He alone must receive the glory. When a volunteer, Cecily Vance, typed my handwritten journal, it was 128 page long. Every entry was written as a love letter to my wife to conceal the message. She was a master of detail in planning, my wife's PhD in education administration. So I wrote in detail to answer the questions I knew she would ask if we were together when you've been together as long as we have, you can pretty well think the other's thoughts in a situation. Uh, someday, well, we had a, we did develop a code that we used. Someday, I'd like to publish that journal as Love Letters from North Korea. Um, I might do it now. 
she would have blushed if she were still with me. But she went to be with Jesus in 2022. God bless you. Next, we'll be talking about the <laughs> getting into the countryside and working with the people of North Korea and how God worked his miracles in those conditions. God bless you. Amen.